Well, good morning. I love to hear stories. One of the most amazing stories in all the Bible is in Mark chapter 1, and that's because one is true and because of then what it's going to affect. If you have your Bibles, look at Mark chapter 1. Speaking of stories, it's probably true that most of us guys love to tell them. Uh, sometimes we, uh, around the campfire, can find our inner storyteller. And I love doing that with my kids. And over the years, I would tell them stories and then run out of stories and borrow some. Sometimes I borrowed stories from a guy who's from South Mississippi that I grew up when I was a kid listening to because my parents loved listening to him. His name was Jerry Clower. And so if you, uh, yeah, somebody over there knows who Jerry Clower is. You're like, I don't know who he is. It'd probably be worth it, uh, maybe, when you have nothing better to do, uh, maybe just to listen to a few of his stories, especially if you want to get acquainted to Southern culture. Because uh, you'll get introduced really quickly at the Southern Culture. One of the uh, stories he, Jerry Clower told was about one of his uh, net relatives that was fishing and was catching a lot of fish. And, of course, this really caused stir in the uh, community because he came back to the dock every time with a boat full of fish. And when people were wondering what he's doing, it can't be legal. So someone reported him to the game warden. The game warden asked if he could go fishing with uh, Jerry Clower's uh, relative. And so... Uh, the story kind of went along like this. I don't have it exactly perfect, but the game warden went fishing. And as they were out there fishing, Jerry Clower's relative takes out a stick of dynamite and a match and lights the dynamite and throws it out into the lake, which causes fish to come to the surface belly up. The game warden said, you know that's illegal. You can't fish like that. Jerry Clower's relative had another stick of dynamite, lit a match, lit the dynamite, handed it to the game warden and said, are you going to talk or are you going to fish? (laughs) You probably have heard that story or something like that, but a lot of times uh, it's true in church that we can talk a lot about what we ought to do and not do it. Jesus said we are to fish. We're to be about fishing for men. If you have Mark chapter 1, why would we fish for men? Well, because Jesus fishes for men. And there's no way in the world that we can be following Jesus closely and then not doing what he's involved in, not being a part of his endeavor. So if Jesus is fishing and we're following, it would stand a reason that we too would fish. We would fish with Jesus because that's why he came. And he could. He could fish for men and change our lives because of who he is. He's not just anybody. He's God in flesh. He'll prove that. He preached a message that was very straightforward about how it is that we are transformed. And he calls us into a mission of reaching others for Christ. The message today is for all of us. It matters because every one of us have been called to follow Christ. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, probably the first step is to follow Christ. And then if you are today a follower of Christ, of primary importance for us is to fish. Look with me, if you will, beginning in verse 12, we find the supernatural ministry of Jesus. Who is Jesus that could command us today to fish? I mean, who is this person that would make a demand on our life and we need to keep it? Well, He's a supernatural being. He is, in fact, God in the flesh. And we're going to see in verse 12 that he goes out into the wilderness 
after being driven there by the Spirit. Our Lord Jesus was born in a stable. He was reared by a carpenter. He lived in obscurity. He merged on the scene in the most interesting way. He came with announcement from a, a prophet by the name of John the Baptist. And then this one who would demand our allegiance identified with us in baptism. He went down in the water and was baptized because he was identifying with sinners who would need to be saved. Though he'd never sinned and has come to be our Savior, he chose to serve us in the way of identifying with us, even into water baptism. After he came out of the water, he was publicly proclaimed by the Father as the only son whom the Father is well pleased. Then he went into the wilderness and he went to war. Our Lord went to war with the devil who tempted him for 40 days and nights and he won that battle hands down. If you look with me in verse 12, the Bible says the Spirit immediately drove him, Jesus, into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. He comes to the God of this world who is Satan and he is tempted by him in the wilderness. The wilderness is a place of loneliness. It's away from people. It's a place of danger. Mark makes it clear there are even wild animals who are there and are dangerous, predatory. And there is also the adversary, Satan. That's what Satan means. He's the adversary. Here our Lord goes into the wilderness, someplace he had never been or we've ever known him to be. In fact, this is a little bit of a shock to think about him going out away from people because our Lord came from heaven where he is around his father. He is surrounded by angels and he is lauded with praise constantly and he leaves that place for us. Uh, I remember the first time uh, I lived up north and we moved up north and uh, we were told there were going to be snow flurries and I thought, man, this is going to be awesome. So I stayed up to about midnight waiting for the flurries. I'm from Florida. Flurries means a lot. Well, no flurries. I go to bed. The next morning I wake up and there's snow about two feet to three feet high covering the entire yard, street. I didn't know what to do. I'm calling in to work. I'm like, I guess we're closed today. And they are laughing. My boss, she was sweet as could be. She was a, my, my boss said, hey, Yurka's wanting to know if we're closed today. And then all the laughing. Like, I don't know. What do you do? Just drive through it. This is culture shock for me in so many ways. I mean, one, I've never lived in snow. And two, I never had people ask me to repeat myself five times. I finally asked somebody, why do you ask me to repeat myself so much? And they said, we just love to hear you talk. It's not like that culture shock. It's not like our Lord could ever be shocked by anything except the fact that he's in the wilderness and he has left heaven. And I want you to see he's done this for us. He's fighting a war. It's a great metaphor for us, him in the wilderness, because if you think about it, the children of Israel had gone through the wilderness and they had an experience of wandering. And theirs was to learn. It was to learn to be patient and obedient to God. That's why in the church, sometimes we use the wilderness experience of our Lord, or even going all the way back to those who were in the wilderness like Elijah and say that they had a wilderness experience. Have you ever had a wilderness experience? 
A wilderness experience, James Dobson says, is usually thought of of a time when a believer endures discomfort and trials. The pleasant things of life are unable to be enjoyed. You've been there, haven't you? Where no matter what's happening around you, no matter what you planned for or paid for, you just can't enjoy it because of the drought of the soul. Maybe you feel like an orange that's been wrung out and all that's left is the dried pulp. It's the wilderness experience. Dobson goes on to say, a wilderness experience is often a time of intensified temptation and spiritual attack. We don't like the discomfort. We want to get away from it. And if we're honest, the wilderness experience for us is nothing we ever welcome. We don't say, yeah, this is great. I'm going through the wilderness. I'm going through the drought. It's not something we welcome in our lives. And oftentimes, because we're in that wilderness, we are tempted to get out of it. We hate discomfort, and we are often very self-centered, and we do everything we can to move away from it. This is why it's so wonderful to see that our Lord, who went into the wilderness, did not remove himself from that temptation, but stayed and fought the war against the devil who tempted him in ways that we are also tempted, yet our high priest was not ever sinful, and he won victory over temptation for us because, you know what, we just can't. We fight temptation and we fall into it. You ever fall into temptation? Yesterday, I made up my mind, I'm going to do good today, going to get some exercise, and I did that, I'm going to work in the yard, and I'm going to fast for a little while, and then my, my sweet daughter came home with uh, donuts from Daily Donut, and if you've ever been there, you know they have an apple fritter, and that is not temptation, that is a must. Like you just, it's like, you just eat it, you just eat it. I heard about an old boy that was really fighting a diet and uh, struggling in it. And uh, he knew he was going to a, a place of uh, work where he had to visit some uh, clients, and it was going to be right past his favorite donut shop. And he, he said, Lord, Lord, help me. Keep me from temptation. If you don't want me to stop at that donut shop, do not let there be a parking spot right up front. He said, and I came by there, and there was a parking spot right up front. Thank you, Lord. It took seven times around the block, but there was one right up front. The reality is our Lord defeated temptation for all of us. He went into the wilderness to fight for us, the fight we could never win, proven in the fact that Adam was tempted in the same way our Lord Jesus was, three times, three ways. Jesus was tempted the three ways that Adam was, and the first Adam failed, but our second Adam, Jesus, succeeded. Who is this Jesus? The wilderness is not always wondering either. Sometimes when we're in the wilderness, we're not wondering, we're led there or driven there by the Spirit. It's an ability for us then to to listen to the Lord and to hear God without all of the noise around us. Sometimes we just have to get away. Vance Havner, the great preacher from Bellevue Baptist some years ago, said, sometimes you just have to come apart before you come apart. Before Jesus went out into public, he went into private. We read constantly that immediately, immediately Jesus acted or straight away. But before there was immediacy, there was intimacy. The Lord Jesus, before he went into his public ministry, went into a time of fellowship with the Father. And we need that Sabbath rest. We need that Sabbath time. We need those spiritual gatherings, even with our family. Parents, think about the times where you gather your children or your family together for a spiritual meeting. Whether that is a weekly prayer 
worship, or even time away that includes some sort of spiritual nourishment. Wilderness experiences are not always wondering, and they're not always wanting. We read here how that our Lord Jesus Christ was among the wild animals. Could you imagine being in the wilderness among the wild animals? And I think this is really important to see that Mark is pointing this out to a lot of city slickers who may have never been in the wilderness and didn't know what that was like. We went to minister to some people in the bayous of, uh, around New Orleans after Katrina, and some of them had home video where they had climbed up on the roof to get away from the water, the rising water all around them. And there were two-story houses and neighborhoods like suburbs, and all you could see were two-story roofs. That's how high the water was. Everybody's getting on roofs, but every animal known to man was trying also to get on those same roofs. The home video were people not only trying to survive the water, fighting off snakes and rats and dogs and cats. The enemy can use whatever he wants to to get at us, including wild animals. And that's Mark's point, that in the wilderness, wild animals might have been wanting to get at Jesus, but they could not, even though the enemy, the adversary, was there because our Lord received protection. One of our favorite Psalms, Psalm 23, and though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, his rod and his staff protect us. And he sets a table before us in the presence of our enemies for, to provide for us. Here Jesus says, without food, without water, but he has perfect provision for us in the very presence of enemies. We oftentimes want to get out of the desert. We don't like it there. But we need to recognize what Jesus did for us, and that is to show us not only will he protect us, but provide for us. Our strength does not come from stored resources, but by the future provisions of our Lord as we lean in, in, into him and trust him. Jesus is not just anybody. He's someone who supernaturally defeated the God of this world. We see this right here in the wilderness. Secondly, you, you would see then if someone was so powerful to overcome the enemy... He would have a message for us, and you would be right, and would be forthright, be blunt. Another way to put it is, Jesus had a straightforward message. Look at verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Notice what Jesus does when he leaves the wilderness. 40 days of fasting and prayer and temptation, overcoming the temptation of the devil. He comes now preaching. And look what time he comes. He comes saying, the time is fulfilled. The word literally means, this is a favorable season of action or golden opportunity. In other words, when Jesus came was not indiscriminate. Jesus came at the perfect time proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom has come. And the kingdom is here. If the kingdom is here, that must mean the king is here. Jesus is very straightforward. The kingdom is here because I'm here. The God of this world has no power or sway over me. And I am proclaiming to you good news. The gospel is here. It's a good reminder, isn't it? That our God is the God of salvation and salvation defines history. For us as believers, we look at all happenings of the world, whether they're local or in our own lives or in the, the, the larger global scene, and, and, and know that we can, we can interpret everything going on right now by the Bible, by God's providential plan of salvation and redemption. It, it, it's not, it, it, it should be common that we look at what's going on in the Middle East and ask ourselves the question, what's God doing? 
Because God's doing something. Because He does have a plan. And His plan is to redeem all those who are His and not lose one. And then, when that happens, to set up His kingdom on earth. So when Jesus comes, He comes at the perfect time and He says this. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. At the perfect time in history. As Galatians says, in the fullness of time. The kingdom of God here is at hand. Why? Because the king of kings is on the earth and he rules. When he says this, he's talking about the inauguration of a kingdom. I know that uh, there were many who were looking for the Messiah to come and set up an earthly rule at this time. But Jesus was coming for a greater purpose. And that is to redeem the hearts of stone and make them hearts of flesh. And rule from the heart. So the kingdom of God literally had come, and had come in the hearts of men. We say that the kingdom of God at this time is internal and invisible, but there is coming a day when Jesus will return. He will rule on this earth, and his kingdom will be external and visible. What God is doing right now around the world is calling his own to himself. And there's even a day when Ethnic Israel, not all of them, but those who are the elected ones to be saved, will see the Messiah and know who he is, mourn for whom they have pierced, turn from their sin, and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. And they will rule and reign on earth with him in a land. That's why what's going on right now in the Middle East is so significant for us as believers because we interpret every happening in the world through the lenses of Scripture and God's redemptive purposes in the world. We say, well, if His kingdom had come when Jesus proclaimed it coming, then why so many problems? Why do I still burn my toast? Why do I have flat tires? Why sickness? Why cancer? Why death? And then how will people even know that the kingdom has come? Because as I look around the world, Pastor, I don't think that God's kingdom has come. There's one way they'll know. And they'll know because the power of the kingdom is working in us. Because we have received the invitation to come into the kingdom, to repent and to believe. And because we've repented and believed the message of the Lord Jesus Christ and the prophets and men like Peter who said, repent and believe... Our hearts have been transformed and Jesus Christ rules in us. Our lives are ruled by King Jesus. This is how the world knows the kingdom has come because they see kingdom people who live with kingdom principles and priorities. We're not people who have just come to church because, you know, we wanted to get things right. You know, a lot of people think that. They think, hey, these guys are going to church because they got to get their life in order. I mean, I shared Jesus not long ago, and I talked about sin, and the guy looked at me and said, well, I guess that's good for you if you're a sinner. As if I needed church because I didn't have my life in order. Yeah, people look at church that way, like they look at going to the gym, or they like look at taking um, some sort of supplement for their brain so they can think better and live longer. Just got to change my life. But we who are kingdom people have repented of our sin and trusted the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom we've been invited into has been inaugurated in our heart so that he rules in us. This is why Jesus comes with a very straightforward message. Repent and believe. Repent 
and believe. Repent. Repent is important because it's not simply feeling sorry for my sin. It means I'm going to stop doing what I once did and I can't do it on my own. I need someone who's defeated sin for me and to come in my place to give me something I don't possess. Who can do that for me? The same one who went out into the wilderness and took temptation and was tempted like me but not sinned. And he is the one who can transform my life when I repent and believe. When Adelia was coming through the hurricane that went up, you know, into Sinhatchee, up through uh, the Panhandle to Valdosta, uh, we thought it might come a little closer. And I was in Nashville at a meeting. And so I changed my flight so I could get home because I needed to be here if that was going to happen to make sure uh, to be in the right place. And so I got, got here just in time. But we got to, uh, had to go through Atlanta. I had to go through Atlanta. Uh, and then I was coming to Jacksonville. And we got all the way to Jacksonville and the pilot comes on. And the pilot says, hey, probably notice, JIA, Jacksonville International Airport, to your left, look out the window, you see the runway, but we can't land. Because there's a microburst and there are other storms now coming through, bands from the hurricane, but, but good news, we have enough fuel to get back to Atlanta. But it's right there. I don't want to go back to Atlanta. Like They didn't even give me coffee or a biscuit. I'm here, I I don't want to go back. That is the testimony of everyone who has believed the king, come into the kingdom. You do not want to go back. You do not go back. You just don't go on sinning like you once sinned. You've repented. You're not going back. This is where you now live. This is who you now are. What defines you is the king. Where you are is the kingdom. And therefore... You show to the world through the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, the way that you choose to live your life, raise your children and educate them, the way that you hold values close, the way that you look towards eternity, that you do not belong to this world anymore. You're weird. You got up and came to church today. You might not even see the kickoff of the Jaguar game. If Jesus has his way in here and just stuff happens we're not expecting, we may not even go home today. What's wrong with you people? This ain't our home. We have a king and we're in a kingdom. And we have repented and believed. Anyone who has repented has also believed. It's not that we're just turning from our bad stuff. We've received the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. We have believed on Jesus Christ. We have let go of our iniquity, our sin, our grime, gritty, wicked parts of our heart. And we receive the free gift of grace. I have turned from my life and I have turned to his. I've died to self. I'm alive to Christ. Don't you want to be saved today if you've never been saved? Because you too can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You too can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. You too can turn to Him from your sin, have your sin forgiven, and have heaven as your home, and be made a member of this incredible eternal kingdom. It's a straightforward message Jesus gives. But then thirdly, because of who Jesus is, 
He had a message that was straightforward, and that was to repent and believe. But to whom? To those who would believe on him. Those who were lost. Jesus came to save those who are lost. And he's going to recruit help. What kind of help? Well, look at verse 16. Just kind of matter of factly how love how uh, Mark puts it, just passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Let me pause here. Um, not in my notes, and didn't say it last time, but this is Peter, and you know Andrew had invited Peter to come meet Jesus already. It's as if these guys haven't met Jesus yet, didn't know who he was, as Mark puts it, but Mark's not insulting our intelligence. He knows that we would know that these men had known about Jesus, had heard him teach, and probably were taught by, about Jesus. Likely they were even disciples of John the Baptist. But they're fishermen. And one of the ways Peter has come to know Jesus is his brother said, hey, come check him out. It's something all of us can do with our friends. So Jesus said to them, look at this, verse 17, follow me and I will make you fisher of men. Now, this is interesting because Mark also says it this way. Andrew, Simon, were casting a net in the sea. Since again, Mark's writing to some city slickers who may have never fished. They may not have known why these guys were throwing nets in the sea. They were fishermen. What he's trying to get across is they're not just fishing. That's what they do. That's their vocation. And so that's why it's so interesting then that Jesus says to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Jesus didn't coin this phrase. He used this phrase from his culture. The idea of being a fisher of men is someone who went after men's minds and hearts to try to turn them. I'm going to help you to come alongside me. And as you follow me, I'm going to show you how to, by my power, turn men's minds and hearts towards me. Immediately, there's Mark's favorite word, they left their nets and followed him. Now again, who is this that can walk up to guys working and say, hey, quit your job, follow me. And they say, okay. Because they're not, by the way, just workers. They are small business owners. They own this business. And they say yes. And not only those guys, but then look at verse 19. He went on a little farther. He saw James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, who were in their boat mending nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Don't you just love the Bible? This is awesome. Because I just picture dad in the boat going, guys, where are you going? We're going with Jesus. Who, who does this? The king can do this. He's not just anyone. He's the one who's entered into our world from heaven, and he has proven himself to be king. He has been proclaimed by the Father as the beloved begotten Son, and here he is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and the kingdom's here. And those guys who followed him could have said, well, if you're a king, then where do you rule from? Where's your headquarters? Where do you govern from? What's your seat of authority? And Jesus could have looked at them and said, you know where my throne is? Where my seat of authority is? Your heart. Where is God's authority now? Where is his seat of rule? Is it your heart? 
I don't know about my heart, preacher. Then is he your king? Because the kingdom requires that kingdom people bow their knee to King Jesus. And he rules in their heart. This changes everything, doesn't it? You're, you're probably already thinking, well, that changes everything. Yeah, it does. Like it changes your vocation sometimes. Like you're willing to leave your work and, and do what Jesus has called you to do where you may not make as much money. Who in America does that? This is not what we're taught in America. In America, you go to the right school. You make good grades, hopefully get a bright scholars scholarship. You go off to college and earn a degree that you might not ever use, but at least you have it. You get a job where you make a lot of money so that you can retire one day and then spend it all. And Jesus said, what, what, if, what if I don't want that for you? What if you have a degree and you have a master's degree and you're working in your vocation and you're making a lot of money and you're making a lot of headway. People really respect you. Your family really appreciates you. But I've got something else for you. Are you willing to leave it all to follow me? Because there's somebody in here today, a husband and a wife, you're wrestling with that. But you're not of this world, are you? And people are going to say, that's weird. In fact, your decision might not only impact your vocation, but it might impact your family relationships. Because you might have to go tell Zebedee, Dad, we're leaving the family business. Or your in-laws might be saying, you're doing what with my grandkids? You're moving where? Oh, no, that's not what we signed up for. We're kingdom people. We bow to King Jesus. What kind of men do this? They leave their job, they leave their vocation, and they're all for the sake of the call. They forsake all for the sake of the call. Because there's nothing like waking up knowing, I didn't call to this. I've been called to this. They knew Jesus. They are going to follow Jesus. And now, what does Jesus say? Well, here's primarily what you're going to do. Now, could you just think with me? (laughs) There's really no sales pitch at this point. I mean, these guys are going to be used to start the largest, most influential movement of all time, the Church of Jesus Christ. There's nothing comparing to what they're about to be a part of launching. But Jesus doesn't come with a sales pitch and saying to them, hey, Peter, just one day, just want you to know, you're going to be the pastor in Jerusalem and you're going to help lead a, a Jerusalem council that's going to send people all over the world to preach the gospel. And people are going to name their kids after you and their basilicas after you. I mean, it's gonna, you're, you're going, your name is going to be a household name. He doesn't do that. Hey, I want you to be a fisher of men. James, I want you to be a fisher of men. This is what it means to follow Christ. In fact, you're going to follow me. When he calls them to follow, that means, means follow me immediately and closely. It's a word that means so close that they can smell Jesus. Rabbis used to say, get dust of my feet on you. That's what's meant here. You're following Jesus so close that the dust he kicks up is covering you. 
If you follow Jesus that closely, you will fish. You will go after lost souls. You'll go after people far from God. John MacArthur said, if God's primary purpose for the saved were a loving fellowship, he would take believers immediately to heaven where spiritual fellowship is perfect. Isn't that true? In heaven, we would be unhindered by sin, disharmony, or loneliness. He then went on to say, if our primary purpose was learning the word of God, he would make believers immediately in heaven, and therefore we would know the word perfectly and understand it with all knowledge. If God's primary purpose for the saved was to give him praise, he again would take believers immediately to heaven where we would praise perfectly and unendingly. I find it very interesting that the primary call on the life of these disciples was to be fishers of men. It's a purpose. Come after me. It's a technical term. Come after me, follow me, and I'll make you. It's a good promise here that Jesus is saying this. I'm making you. I'm going to make you, transform you. And it means bit by bit, transforming you into a fisher of men. How do I know that I know this king? How do I know that I'm in the kingdom? And how do I know I'm following him closely? Simple. I'm fishing. I'm fishing. Anybody grow up fishing? When I was a kid, I'd ride my bike down to uh, St. John's River around Moosehaven, wade those docks. I'd go in those canals. I'd go into lakes fish wherever I could. I just love to fish. As I got older, somebody would say, Scott, do you fish? I'd say, yeah, but you know what? I'd be lying because ne- I like to fish. I just don't ever fish. I would like to fish. I just don't fish. I've got some shirts that would make me look like a fisherman. I've got some hats. My folks have a lake house. We've got a boat. I've got a bunch of fishing rods, and they're just sitting there. Here's the bottom line is we can look like a fisherman, we can talk like a fisherman, we can have fisherman stories, but if we don't fish, we're not fishermen. And if you're a believer and you're not fishing, you're not following. I'm not the first to say that. I won't be the last to say it. It was Jesus who called his disciples to be fishers of men. This is going to be a worldwide endeavor. Come after me. I want you to fish for men. Can you imagine this? Jesus coming along the scene. Hey, the kingdom's here. I'm the king. Someone saying, well, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Do you, do you have a message? Do you have a hook? Yeah, I have one message. Repent. That's your message? That's your message for this movement? Yeah, repent. Well, do you have any, any guys can help you with that? Oh, yeah, I got some great guys. Well, who are they? they they've been to seminary. They, they had their PhD. Uh, they've done a lot of demographic study for you, so they know sociology and know how to affect people effect, you know, effectively. Uh, uh, no, I got, I got some guys who are fishermen. I think they're pretty good guys. That's who you chose? Fishermen? Well, no, not just fishermen. I'm thinking about some other guys I'm going to call. This one guy is really good with books. His name is Judas. Um, this one guy is really good with logistics. He asks a ton of questions. His name is Philip. Another guy, I, I think he's going to be somebody one day. He's, he's a, little, a little rocky. His name is Thomas. That's who Jesus chooses as disciples. Guys like that to launch this worldwide movement called the church. It gives me a lot of encouragement because if God can use guys like that, then he can use a guy like me and he can use a gal like you. And that's helpful because he doesn't have to. 
I, 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 I don't have to be used to God. He can use anybody he wants. But God has chosen. And we have this story to tell others that changes lives. Imagine. Mama. Mama sends Junior down to Peter and Andrew's fishing bait shop, the fishmongers of the town. Little boy comes back empty-handed. How did you bring back fish? Because Mama, the sign on the door said, gone fishing. When they go back and wait for them to come back. Well, they told me they're not coming back. We've been called to go fishing, and we have something to go that's more important than anything else we can do, and that is to tell the story of Christ. I went to New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. One of the presidents there who has buildings named after him is Dr. Level. He tells a story of uh, being a pastor during the 50s, 40s, 50s. Dr. Level was, uh, was given a responsibility of going and delivering a very important message uh, to a mama. His mama had a, a son who was at war during World War II and was found to be missing in action. Later, it was determined that he was actually killed in action. Imagine just that for a moment if you're a mama or a dad. you got a child, they've gone off to war, and they're not coming home. A few days later, after that message was delivered, Dr. Level was contacted by the State Department. The State Department said, Pastor Level, we have found that this young man was not missing and, in fact, is not dead and will be home in three days. And we couldn't think of a better person than you to deliver this message to his mama. Picture yourself being Dr. Level, sitting in your office, receiving that message from the State Department that this little boy who was at war is not dead but is alive, and that mama now is going to hear the news. Your son not only is alive, but you're going to embrace him in just a few days. What would you do? You'd break every law getting to that house. You'd bang on that door and she'd run in. Yes, what is it? I've got good news for you. Your son's not dead. He's alive. Could you imagine the joy? Dr. Level said, could you imagine this? It's just out. It's beyond imagination. If I'd have sat in my office and thought, yeah, I'll get to that one day. Yeah, I'll probably deliver that mess. Probably important. I ought to, but I'm busy right now. Or somebody will get that message to that mama. Not on your life. Jesus has given us a call. A call to go and tell men and women the good news about the kingdom and that he is the king that can transform their lives. And it's not enough to talk about it. You know what? When you're fishing too, you're not fighting. When you get fish, fishing, you get focused. You don't worry about the things that don't matter so much as much as those things that are main. When you're fishing, you're not complaining and grumbling as much. When you're seeing people around you come to Christ, you're more concerned about discipleship and apologetics and growing in your faith. You're not just coming and trying to get smarter theologically, but you're learning how you can apply this on an everyday level for the people that you're ministering to that are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, who when they get saved don't know that where the book of Job is or the book of Palms is. Things become much narrower in focus. 
We get after the main thing when we're fishing. Are you fishing? Jesus has called us to be fishing. Not all of us that fish always catch. The reality is I've been fishing a lot of times where I caught nothing. Someone could say, well, you didn't really go fishing. No, I was fishing. I just didn't catch anything. Just like some of you go shopping and you don't buy anything. I mean by that, that there's times when we go fishing and we're the part of the process that God has in place to plant, to water, or to see increase. And every time that we see someone saved, we just happen to be there when God does the work. My dad and I were talking about this yesterday. We were talking about people that we have recently witnessed to and seen saved. And here's what we both concluded. Every time, even recently, but every time in the past that we've ever seen someone pray to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, follow Christ, we realize we were just one piece of the puzzle, one part of the process. We just happened to be there when the fruit came. And I love that. Because I could be having a horrible day, and that changed everything. Like, I can have my truck broke and take it to the dealership and then wonder if it's going to get fixed and get in a rental car that I really don't want but sit in front of a girl who's giving me my rental car and ask her this question, do you know Jesus? And her say, I don't know Jesus, and share the gospel. And right in the middle of a dealership, through tears and just bubbling over with brokenness, she prays to receive Christ. And I don't care about the truck anymore. And I think, woe is me that I did. Because it's not about that, it's about fishing. I wish every Wednesday you could sit in our staff worship and just hear our staff constantly recount fishing story after fishing story after fishing story after fishing story. Because there's one thing I do know about fishermen. They have stories. If I were to ask you what your fishing story is today, do you have one? Where's the... Where's the fishing story? When's the last time you got to share Jesus with somebody? Well, I don't really do that, Pastor. In all love and candor, you're not following because he's fishing. And if you're following his footsteps so that his dust is covering you, you're fishing. You're not just talking about it. You're fishing. I want to call you to be a fisherman. I want to call you to be a fisherman. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us this text You've given us this call. You've given us this purpose in life, meaning in life, to be on mission with you, to be fishing with you, to God go with you every day, to look around, to see where you're working, to see where you are calling, and to, Lord, be a part of that process of either planting, watering, even seeing sometimes the fruit of conversion. Thank you. Help every one of us in this room to be on, on mission, fishing with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?